As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. This is an auxiliary episode where Robert Breedlove of the What Is Money podcast interviewed me for his show. We talk about various logical paradoxes and what it's like to run theories of everything. Robert Breedlove is a digitally fluent finance and operations executive, a philosopher, and an author with a broad spectrum of leadership experience across technology, finance, and wealth management. He's a freedom maximalist with innovative insights on Bitcoin, investments, and poverty alleviation. Enjoy today's auxiliary episode where Robert Breedlove interviews... Kurt Jaimungal, that is me. Kurt Jaimungal, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you here. Just by way of quick introduction for my audience, uh, you are a filmmaker who decided to pursue filmmaking while studying mathematical physics at the University of Toronto. Uh, you are the host of the very popular Theories of Everything. Uh, you observe topics on theoretical physics, consciousness god free will all the profound questions that we tend to outwardly ignore but inwardly wrestle with theories of everything is one of the fastest growing science and philosophy podcast it analyzes the current state of theories of everything that is a surveillance of the field theories of everything pros cons and the relations of each to be a part of the discussion type theories of everything oh this is your I was reading an intro for you, and it sounds like that last part is not part of what I should read. So, Theories of Everything, very cool podcast uh, with a lot of interesting guests and fascinating conversations. Uh, what I thought we would do today is just talk about your experience uh, starting the show, running the show, hosting the show. Um, I'm really curious, just individually, as an, one one podcaster to another, and then also, um, I wanted to get a sense for like how much it's changed you, you know, because I know that doing this show, talking to a lot of big thinkers has certainly had an influence on me. So I wanted to get a feel for that for you. So just to get started, maybe you could tell my audience a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your podcast and uh, how your journey brought you into this field. Sure. 
My name is Kurt, as you have heard already, and I have a podcast called Theories of Everything. What it is, it's more of a project than a podcast. And what I mean is that I'm interested in TOES, so that's the acronym for Theories of Everything. I stumbled upon the Theories of Everything podcast in my effort to learn more about TOES. A theory of everything, first of all, well, what the heck is it? That's not easy to define because there's some controversy there. Some people take the word everything to mean everything. And then some people try to define, well, what is a thing? So that's Carl Friston's approach, and Jacques Vallée has an approach like that. What the heck does it mean for there to be a thing and then every of it? Well, initially what I meant was quantum mechanics and then well, quantum field theory and then gravity, which is general relativity. Combining them is considered to be a toe. And then it's synonymized sometimes with grand unified theories, but those are actually separate. I'm interested in those as well. As I wanted to learn more about theories of everything, some people said consciousness is involved quantum mechanically, but perhaps even more fundamentally than that. At first, being the person who came from an academic background and just learned math and physics, I was someone who excoriated that view as being generally one of mystics who misunderstand quantum mechanics and like to use the word quantum to give some scientific credence to whatever they're espousing mystically. But as I started investigating it more and more, I, I'm less and less certain about virtually everything. You wanted to know how did it change me? Well, it put me in this void where I tumble and it's not exactly a pleasant place to be. So on the podcast, I also investigate consciousness. What role does that have to play with regard to the fundamental laws? And is the conceptualization of fundamental laws the correct conceptualization? Because that implies reductionism, and maybe that's not the correct paradigm. So I'm interested in that as well. How about your podcast? What got you started with yours, man? <laughs> um, I assume it's not just about money. I looked through your guest list. Some of these people have not, well, maybe tangentially have some views on money. Yeah, we, we definitely get into the nature of money. So it gets quite philosophical because the history of human beings and the history of humanity are pretty tightly bound. Um, I What started got me started on the show was I have an accounting and finance background and I had basically started a company to work for myself. Initially, it was a CFO consulting services. But when I started that company, it freed me up to investigate a lot of new things. This was late 16, early 17. And so I started looking, learning about crypto, really. And long story short, one thing led to another. I uh, ended up way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and then operating a hedge fund in the space for a number of years. Um, and during that time, I was writing monthly updates to my investors. And I also started publishing like research findings just on the history of money and, and whatnot. And these things were becoming popular. My written work was becoming popular in Bitcoin circles. And I got invited on a podcast to talk about it. Those podcasts were popular. And so once again, kind of one thing led to another. And um, people were telling me they wanted more, right? More writing, more talking. And so I just jumped on the bandwagon and started a podcast. Uh, and got really lucky. My first guest was Michael Saylor. Came on for mm, seven. Talk about a first guest you know, dynamite guest. And, you know, I, I guess part of the interaction with him and then also just other things going on in life, I really started to want to focus on education. Um, I just decided I was getting more, more meaning out of that. And so the podcast is a great way to help, you know, educate people about things to learn. Really. I don't, I don't even like to say education necessarily because, 
on the podcast, I'm basically learning, right? I'm learning from these other guests. We're engaging in dialogue, trying to get to truth on some particular topic. And you're really just letting your audience observe that dialogical process in a way. So I've called it learning out loud, you know, as opposed whereas education sort of sounds like I have some final answer that I'm trying to sell to an audience, which I don't really, I'm just, you know, it's exploratory, strong opinions, loosely held as they say. Um, but yeah, that's it in a nutshell for me. Yeah. So you went to school for finance and accounting. Accounting and finance, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I had a bit of a background about it. Yes, we do. The other part of your question, we talk about way more than just money. Um, you know, m- money is this tool that we use to like establish consensus on the relativity of exchange values, for instance. So it's got these informational components. It's got energy components. Uh, it's got a component. Uh, when you look at property rights, I think it's something like the way human beings express territoriality, you know, like all most social animals are territorial. Humans have just enshrined it in this, this institution called private property and money is the most important form of private property. So we talk about a lot of other things. We go down a lot of rabbit holes uh, through that. Um, to get back to you. So I, I wonder, was the title, the theory theories of everything, the first time I heard that term was, I think I read the book by Stephen Hawking. Pretty sure he has a book called Theory of Everything uh, that I read when I was young. So I wanted to ask you about the inspiration for the title. And then also, you were just saying your your interaction with your guests has made you less sure of everything, which is interesting, right? It's almost, I find that happening with me as well, that I've become much more, uh, I have a much greater affinity for Socrates when he said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing at all. Yeah. I also think that he did claim to know some things. So firstly, he was a theist. He believed strongly in the gods. And there was something else that he believed. Him saying, I know nothing, was popularized as his main phrase. But I don't know if that's what he truly believed. But anyway, I agree. Except I don't want to know nothing. It's not a (laughs) pleasant... Like I said, it's not pleasant. So I try to minimize that. But I just can't help but being shaken terribly from time to time. Okay, the name theories of everything that comes from the physics term, it's a physics term. And so it means what are the laws that we can write down mathematically that can predict every other observable phenomenon in a physical sense, materialist sense. You don't need to insert the word material there because it turns out science is philosophically agnostic despite most scientists thinking that it proves or claims or assumes materialism. It doesn't. But anyway, how can you predict any phenomenon or show that whatever we see here at a large scale, so for instance, that this is derived from something that's more fundamental, and then also it'd be great if this theory could be yield new predictions and be falsifiable. That's pretty much what the word theory of everything means. And like I mentioned, technically it's gravity and quantum field theory, but but it's taken to be a bit more than that now. Right. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about paradoxes, if you don't mind. Yeah. One of my favorite words. So have you heard of Newcomb's paradox? I don't think so. It's a money paradox. And in case you're interested, I'm writing a book on paradoxes. I'm writing a book on paradoxes slash free will and consciousness, basically the subjects of the Toll podcast. And I'm doing Mm. so because I forget so much of it. Like from one podcaster to another, I study voraciously for different guests. And then I end up forgetting it about one month later, almost all of what I've studied, because it's much like I'm cramming for an exam or a test. 
and then I've, mm-hmm. I have to move on to the next course. And I don't like that. I feel like a fool. And there's so much else that I need to know. And I need to remember, I need to have the stepping stones and I'm constantly removing the stepping stones or they're just disappearing behind me. So mm. as an effort for me to remember more, I'm writing a book. Well, anyway, who knows if this book will even be released, but either way, I'm writing a book. So paradoxes, there's a paradox called Newcomb's paradox. And what it is, is okay. Imagine there's a genie. Okay. So there's genie and he has two boxes in front of you. And he said, as one box is transparent, it's made out of glass. So you can mm-hmm. see what's inside. And the other is a safe. It's made out of metal. You can't see what's inside. So the transparent one, the glass one right here, has $1,000 in it. You can see the $1,000, okay? And the other one, the genie says, what's in this safe is either a million dollars or nothing. Okay, so, well, what decides whether it's a million dollars or nothing? The genie says, as soon as you entered this room, I scanned your brain. I'm like a supercomputer. I'm like God. I predicted whether you will choose both. Like, you're going to have the choice. Do you want both boxes? to take home or do you want just the safe okay now if the genie says i've predicted well i'm not going to tell you my prediction but here's what the rules are if you take both there will be nothing in the safe so i'm going to punish you for being greedy Mm -hmm. but if you just choose the safe there's going to be one million dollars inside now i am infallible so i know which one you will choose what do you do okay so let me know if the conditions are clear I think the conditions are clear, but isn't it obvious that you would just, well, I guess if you believe the genie, you would just take the metal box. Right, right. Okay, now here's where there's some conflict, because as a rational being who wants to maximize the amount of money you have, when you enter the room, there's two, this is why it gets into the tricky subjects of rationality, which people think is so clear cut. It's not. And same with free will. There's two different kinds of decision theory. So there's causal, it doesn't matter, there's names for these. One where you want to maximize the amount of money you have, and then the other where you just think about, well, what does the evidence lead me to believe? Okay, Mm -hmm. so the evidence leads you to believe that, hey, this genie has done this many, I didn't say this, but has done this thousands of times and is always correct. He always predicts correctly. So, and he said he's infallible. I'm going to believe him. This is the voice of God. I'm going to just choose this one safe. Okay, but then the the causal decision theory says, well, I'm all the genie has already made up his mind. The money is either there or not. So then the other point of view is, look, I've entered this place. The money is either in the safe or not. So mm. no matter what, there's either a million dollars there or there's nothing. I may as well take both boxes so I can get a million plus a thousand or I can get maybe there's nothing in the box. Let me just take both. Mm-hmm. So that's the paradox. Well, which one do you do? It's interesting. Uh, the point is, like, if you want to maximize the amount of money, what do you do? That's essentially the question. What do you do? Yeah, so so it's drawing this line between the two forms of rationality you describe. One is, like, enhancing or maximizing your expected value, which would be to take both boxes, versus what does the evidence lead you to believe, <laughs> which is, like, uh, I guess the other embedded presupposition there is that if, if the... It's almost like the genie already either did put the money in the box or not. Yeah, yeah. I should have said that. That is the case. The genie has yeah. put the money or hasn't already. Oh, as it has. As soon as you okay. came in, he made that decision. Okay. And then he placed money in there without you looking. Got it. I was just saying, as a genie, I don't, he could make it appear or vanish based on your decision, no, perhaps. No, no. But no. Yeah, so it's already there. So now, now that you know that, what would you do, Robert? 
Well, I guess if I'm talking to a genie, <laughs> I believe he's a genie. I'm probably going to believe the guy, but um, that the devil's kind of in the details for what makes you believe. Okay, so now here's now here's a variation on that same problem. Okay, you can advise your friend. So there's still a genie, the whole setup, except now it's your friend coming in, and it's not you. You're standing behind the box. So remember the box. This one is transparent, and then this one is opaque. Okay, well you're now on this side, so you can see the transparent one, just like your friend can see the transparent yeah. one. But on the other side of the safe, there's some glass. So you can actually see whether the genie put in the money or not. Mm. Now, you would always tell your friend, just take both boxes. Because you can see. You, you can see either there's money in there or there's not. So just take both boxes. Every time, the decision is just take both boxes because you can see it. Then the question mm. is, well, why does that make a difference at all? Wow, that's a great question. Well, anyway, it's just for me, I think about this and I, I have to stop. I have to tell myself to stop. And like, I have OCD and these intrusive thoughts now. I have to do meditation and mindfulness so I don't think about it. And, and have that's a really interesting one, actually, because I, yeah, you. Well, I guess what. So the takeaway there is always make, always maximize expected value. This is like poker, right? If you're trying, if you're playing really high, if you're playing poker at a high level, you're basically always trying to make positive expected value calculations so it sounds like that yeah some this case that you should just always take both boxes no matter what the genie says yeah but it's strange because the genie is right and there shouldn't be any money in the first box if you're going to take both boxes so the what's the resolution to this paradox there is none this is something that's been debated for i think decades and mm. there are proposed solutions and then people find errors with those solutions and this continues on and on so there's also the question of on the theories of everything podcast we talk about ufos sometimes and people are like well why do you why the heck do you care about ufos and evidence and so on and so on the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and so on well firstly mm -hmm. evidence is not clear-cut secondly it's not as if there's a difference between extraordinary evidence and regular evidence as brian mm -hmm. keating says it's not like he's an experimental physicist he's like there's no box that i tell my graduate students okay now let's get the extraordinary evidence put it in the extraordinary evidence box but, and then there's some paradoxes when it comes to what constitutes evidence. So yeah. I don't know how to say them without... seems like, too, though, if, because if you did just trust the genie and only take the metal box, but the money was not in the box, then wasn't, wouldn't the genie be lying at that point? No, the, it, then you would have gotten one million. But I thought he already decided whether the money is in there or not. He calculates. As soon as you come in, he calculates. He reads your brain, and he knows what decision you're going to make. Huh. So if he knows that you're going to take just the safe, there will just be one million dollars in the safe. And if he thinks you're going, if he knows that you're going to take both, then he will make sure there's zero. Then he doesn't put so, anything. So if he knows you're only going to take the metal box, and he puts the million dollars in the box, and then your friend is standing on the other side of the box telling you to just take both anyways, because there's a million and one. Yeah, that's where the paradox is. Like, wow. I guess your friend doesn't know the rules of the game. Otherwise, he wouldn't be telling you to take. Well, right then and there, if he tells you to take both, well, that's what's so tricky about this is that as soon as another person observes it, does this, it's why does that make a difference? Reality. Why the heck would that make a difference at all? Anyway, yeah, yeah we, can, we can continue to talk about that for like four hours Thanks and for hours. circling my brain first thing in the day here. <laughs> yeah. That's a really interesting one. So your book is going to be about this then, right? Writing, exploring paradoxes, free will, consciousness, etc. Yeah, I like to do that. And then secondly, well, firstly, it's fun. And I'm sure you have fun on your podcast. Maybe that's the first, the primary reason you do it. 
And right. for me, and I'm sure for you, you would be doing what you're doing if you had all the money in the world. Well, maybe yes. not all the money in the world, you would maybe help out different causes and so on, but you understand. Yeah, it's it's a very fulfilling occupation and one that came about pretty quite organically. You know, it's not something I ever chose for myself, which is interesting. It's how that evolves over time. But yeah, I love to read. I love to talk about big ideas. And now I get to do that for a living. So it's it's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. um, what was your inspiration originally for, for starting Theories of Everything? I wanted to learn Donald Hoffman's theories. So if you've heard mm -hmm. of Donald Hoffman, yeah, okay. So yeah, I've had him on the show. He, he makes many claims about consciousness and people just take it as, and say, wow, that's so profound. And I'm thinking, okay, but he's tying this to some mathematics. I have a background in math, so why don't I just read the papers and then interview him? It doesn't seem like anyone is doing that. So that's what I did. And then I had a great technical interview with him. And people seem to like that because there seemed to be a dearth of that in the podcast space. So mm -hmm. then I, was, I was encouraged by that because I actually like to read papers. And I like mm -hmm. to not play devil's advocate or pinholes or criticize, but just talk to people and say, here's what occurs to me when you say so-and-so. And listen, it's like office hours with a professor. You're allowed to ask whatever questions you like to this intellectual giant. So why don't I just do that and and see where this goes? And it ended up taking off. Mm. I'm, I'm again saying I'm. I think this is just the the story of podcasts. I don't know of many people who are successful at podcasts. What I mean is that they have a somewhat large podcast that went into it trying to make a podcast. It's more like they <laughs> happened upon it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's... I'm sure people ask you, like, what's the advice that you have for a new podcaster? Do you think that is there such a huge element of chance that you would just either have to stumble upon it and be successful or, well, essentially get lucky or you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, my general advice is to do what is interesting to you, right? Like my litmus test for my episodes is I want to have conversations with people that I think I will find interesting. I have questions I want answered, uh, you know, for whatever reason. And so if I'm genuinely engaged and hopefully attaining some dialogue with my guests, that that seems to be the magic that people really get into. It's like dialogue, active dialogue about big ideas is almost like a spectator sport where, um, you know, you see two people like when I see Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris debate. You know, not that a podcast always has to be a debate, but that's one form of dialogue that is um, exhilarating, right? You're seeing two people kind of pushing the boundaries on their mental models, kind of battling in a way. And then you're a, you're a spectator in that process. So it's challenging your own viewpoints and, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's a debate format or just a, a discussion format, I feel like that, um, uh, that process where you're banging these things together, you're reaching for unexplored territory, you know, trying to get um, a, a misconception brought into the world of knowledge or, or common consensus somehow, that seems to be the sport that is that is podcasting or dialogue. So I try and just, yeah, try to aim for people that I th think are interesting to talk to about ideas I want to learn about. I think Plato had the first podcast just before there were podcasts and he had the dialogical forum with Socrates and so on. Right. And I, th I think right. that's what podcasts are and are an extension of that. We're all, all just, so in a sense, we're all following Rogan, but in another sense, we're all following Plato. Yeah. No, that's a great, 
framing I've, I've said that podcast is like the resurgence of dialogue in the digital age because in the 20th century we had a very top-down media model right I, I when my mom was a kid i remember seeing all we had were channels three six three nine and twelve i think she said if the president's on you're fucked so we moved from that model where there's like very few media organs you know propagating out to everyone yeah to now we have this it's like it's like from a one mini uh -huh. computer networking model to a mini, mini model and now you know nodes on this distributed network of thought called the internet that must resonate well with you because if you're into bitcoin you have a central philosophical tenet of decentralization i'm curious yes. to ask you if you don't mind something i was thinking about is how far does that go and what i mean by that is is there such a thing as too much freedom too much decentralization well i think it's a good question and um there's definitely trade-offs you know there's the old adage that if you want to go far if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together so if you stick to one centralized plan right if someone laid out a plan right now and just said hey we need to build spaceships everyone in the world needs to build spaceships just full-time flat out that's what we need to do that would be like one centralized plan and if everyone did that well we could make a lot of spaceships really mm -hmm. quickly right we could do it really fast but I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think like to adhere to a centralized plan over time doesn't seem to be sustainable because what you what requires everyone to do is to drop their own wants or preferences and follow the central plan, right? And that's why I think central planning historically has failed many, many times. Um, the libertarian philosopher Hayek made a great point too. He said, even if you could craft the perfect central plan and say, here's what everyone should do in the world right now to best satisfy everyone else's wants in the most profitable, economically efficient way. That the moment you put that plan into motion, it would start to deviate from reality because reality is always changing. So central planning, again, even if it was the perfect plan for a moment in time, it would never, it's hard for it to be sustainable over time because reality is always changing. The opposite end of that spectrum it's really central planning versus decentralized planning, right? Because decentralization doesn't mean no planning. It just means each individual plans for themselves or they engage in, in um, you know, common enterprises like companies with others and they, they make collective plans. But the point is there's no plan being imposed from on high on you. That's what I, I think decentralization would, would kind of be the spirit of. And if, if you want something that's going to last for a long time, you know, like a mode of, of human socioeconomic organization that's going to be sustainable, that's going to go far, I think you have to do it um, in a decentralized way, ultimately. Uh, there's a great paper on this called The Use of Knowledge in Society by Hayek, the same guy I just mentioned. And he makes this argument that, you know, knowledge sort of emerges everywhere and at local scales and it's it its utility diminishes right like you get local knowledge that's useful right then and there but if you had to pass that knowledge to a bureaucracy wait two weeks get approval and then finally it comes back and you can do whatever the thing is that really reduces the adaptivity of the marketplace and market actors right they can't act on local fresh knowledge right so it's losing it's losing some value when it goes through the machinery of bureaucracy, for instance. 
So I think you want to decentralize as much as possible. Um, but that sort of leaves leaves out the big central questions like what should we be doing as a society? What should we be optimizing for? Is it GDP? Is it some other metric of human flourishing? You know, et cetera. And I think Bitcoin's kind of an interesting animal in that way that it's a decentralized network that doesn't have any political leaders inside of it, yet it's centered on this motif of 21 million. Like mm. that is kind of the central plan mm -hmm. of Bitcoin, right? It's like no matter what happens, this thing stays at Why is it 21 million. and not 20? Or not 100? It's arbitrary. It's arbitrary what the number is, actually. It's just the fact yeah. that it doesn't change. So you have, you have a money that can't cannot be inflated or counterfeited. And that's mm -hmm. the key. Could be, who knows why? I mean, there's a lot of thinking about why Satoshi chose 21 million. Um, I, I, I could point you to some Twitter threads on it and whatnot, but I I not haven't been on, down into that rabbit hole too much. I would just say the magic magic of the magic number 21 million is that it doesn't change. Yeah, so I guess my question about decentralization becomes a question about freedom. In the Marxist circles, I hear them, they also care about freedom, or at least claim to. Right. So it seems like everyone is just pursuing freedom. But then to me, I don't know if freedom is what we, like, well, how far does freedom go? Because you have skin, now that's a, a form of a border. You have constraints on you with the laws of physics, mm. and you want those there. You were taught a language, and so you didn't choose, firstly, to be born, secondly, to learn the values you learned, to learn the language that you learned. And so there is a, a form of tyranny of parenting, and then there's the laissez-faire kind of parenting, and, and I don't like to be around those children, and I'm sure most people don't, including the parents, but that's because people have this need or have this philosophy that, no, I don't want to impose because I don't like when the government imposes, but then they constantly think about it in terms of government. So I'm, I'm just curious, well, like, how far does this freedom, do we not need constraints? <clears throat> Jordan Peterson, I'm sure, talks about this with order and chaos. You need both. Ian McGilchrist talks about this. There needs to be some constraint as well. Like the unbridled freedom is not something. Yeah, and we have. We have little ideas to what the heck unbridled freedom looks like. Mm, yeah, and... Even if you're on an island and it's just you, there's still manifold restrictions with your body, with other animals. So what level and type yes. of confinement is okay? I don't know. Yes. Yes. So the fundamental constraints that none of us know how to throw off really are like thermodynamics, sure. right? Gravity, Earth's gravity. Every, every organism's survival strategy is adapted to Earth's gravity on Earth, obviously. When we build cars and buildings, they're designed to stay. There's a design to have structural integrity in Earth's gravity. So there are certain restraints. So I guess the question is, what additional man-made restraints should we be placing on ourselves? And um, the Rothbardian argument, this is a very strong argument made from the libertarian philosophy school of libertarian philosophy i'm thinking of his book in particular the ethics of liberty is that the boundary should be private property now you have to understand what property means it basically means most fundamentally you own yourself you own your own body and then the things you go into the world and justly acquire by extension your own individual self-ownership become yours so when we talk about increasing freedom 
Um, I think that is the natural limiting principle is it you want everyone to have maximal freedom to do whatever they want with the limiting principle of other people's person and property, right? Like I should go into the world and accumulate whatever value I need so long as I don't hurt anyone or steal from anyone. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And that process, if you honor that boundary of, of private property, the interesting thing about that is that it creates more freedom. Defined as opening up of option space. So the guy that's on the desert island, there's a certain things he can't do, right? If he's just there with only his body, he can't really leave the island. He doesn't have a boat or an aircraft. Uh, he can only pick fruit with his hands. He doesn't have tools and whatnot. But what can you do? He can delay gratification, right? Spend less time consuming fish, more time building a fishing rod. And then the next thing you know, he's economized fish production, right? He can catch more fish per hour with a rod than he does with his hands. And then he can spend a bit more time building a boat. And all of a sudden, he's increasing his option space into how far out to sea he can go. Maybe he can eventually leave the island. And so it's that process, that capitalistic process, that creates more freedom in the world, creates more options. For the Marxists out there, I would again point to uh the mises critique of socialism that they basically prove that socialism doesn't work because it doesn't produce price signals so we can't allocate capital intelligently and it that's why it degenerates into this game of just statist rhetoric and nonsense and ultimately i would think mass murder again um we're all just animals trying to do the best with the assets at hand. And if you don't have a price signal and property rights to allocate these things intelligently and nonviolently, then whatever system you build on top of it degenerates is my, my view on that. Man, I have many philosophical questions, but I think like we should save it for when you come on my podcast. Yeah. Yes. I need to ask you some more questions though. Uh, That's fine. I enjoy this. Well, like here's just some thoughts and maybe I could, put them in your brain for you to think about if you haven't thought about them, which I'm sure you have. So it sounds like, okay, well, I want to maximize my freedom today. 
to the degree that it allows me to quote unquote go far, like you mentioned before. So maximize future freedom. So somehow you, okay. Mm -hmm. then how far does that go? How far? Like what the heck does this extreme freedom? Well, we don't want freedom from the physical laws of nature. Well, then also what's the difference between you and a law of nature? Is there a separate separation? There's this great conversation with this by this mathematician named Raymond Smullyan. So people can look this up. I basically read it, read it aloud on my channel. And it's Raymond Smullyan. It's a conversation between man and God. And the man is saying to God, why did you give me freedom? I find this to be a huge imposition because I, I have this huge moral weight to do good. And it's not easy to do good. And it's impossible to do 100% good. So please remove my freedom. And then God's like, well, why don't I remove your the feelings of badness that you have, like the guilt? Then the guy's like, he thinks about it. He's like, well, if you remove that, then I may commit atrocities in the future. And myself now would be responsible for those future atrocities because I'm removing my guilt center. Then mm -hmm. I'm just mad at you for giving me freedom to begin with. It's this whole conversation of back. It's like a dialogue, like Plato, back and forth between a man and God. It's so playful. Raymond Smullyan's this great writer. He's dead now. It's one of the people I would like to interview. I can't, but it then becomes all about, well, the distinction between you and natural law and what is free will and what is God and what is goodness and is there sin. This is why when I read your description, if I'm recalling it correctly, I liked it because it said something like, I explore what is money and the rabbit hole that that entails. Something along the lines of that. Oh yeah. yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I think that that if you explore almost any phenomenon, so for instance, these headphones or this list text, it's a chapstick, that if you explore it and you try to understand it completely, it leads you to virtually every other question. You see this in science, where if you want to learn about a butterfly's brain, you need to learn about a lizard's brain, and then you need to learn about evolution, and you need to learn about the whole phylogenetic tree to, well, not the whole, but maybe the whole, if you want to learn about or put out a thesis on a butterfly's brain. Then it's extremely interesting because I was speaking to someone named Chloe Valdry. Do you know who that is? Chloe Valdry? Okay, well anyway. She's more of the consciousness, Zen, mindfulness, Eastern type, who was saying, Kurt, mm -hmm. I don't like your analytical approach with toe because it's not gonna lead you to answers there you can't have an analytical answer to an experiential problem. I think that that's the case and I also don't think that what I'm doing with toe is just analytical. I think that there's something about this format, Robert, both you and I, and you and your guests, and me and my guests, that is necessarily propositional because we're just speaking. And, and it's not like you can have mm -hmm. a room full of people and then meditate with them. But off air, I'm mm -hmm. sure you do plenty of experiential work and same with myself. So it's not as if I'm not exploring experientially. But then I also wonder how much of that's true. Cantor, for instance, thought he was analyzing the mind of God by analyzing infinity mathematically. And there are many other, historically, people thought that studying physics was the same as studying God. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much writings about God from Newton. Right. And that's one of the reasons why there's order to the universe at all, why we can do science, because God made it intelligible. At least this is their view. Did you also feel this to be the case, that if we were to study anything, we incorporate everything? Yes. Well, man, so much good stuff there. Um, I think it was the physicist Brohm that described reality as the unbroken wholeness. Hmm. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale 
both online and in person. They streamlined the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. So it's, it's in f- everything touches everything else, right? It's, it's continuous throughout, but we as rational beings use language and thought to kind of draw boxes around things and we turn a, a, a perception into a conception and then so then you know so to go from rock to the idea of a rock and then we create a language that's established on it's our consensus of understanding so when i create this sound with my mouth it says rock it's like i can reliably presume you're running the same open source software called english that it conjures up roughly the same image that i had in my mind right so um it's interesting that we, it's like, I've said this a number of ways. Reality is like a stack of patterns on patterns on patterns that rhyme, but don't repeat. Or you could look at it as like an ocean with no shore and no surface that the whole thing is just this yeah. continual fluid body that's wholly interconnected, but to navigate it, we have to map it, right? And we have to map it with these, uh, with concepts and conceptions and, and groupings and ideas. Um, which we then, you know, obviously it's, it's a, it's an abstraction away from reality. Like when you convert, uh, an experience into something linguistic, but the linguistics 
and paradoxically, perhaps somehow lets you navigate that reality more efficiently, effectively, et cetera, over time, right? It lets you build uh, a whatever, a better boat, a car, jet, spaceship, whatever it may be. So um, there is something really fascinating about that. And it is divine in a way, I guess, in that we were sort of, you know, if, if the idea of God as the creator, whatever words you want to insert there, nature, the universe, whatever that creative force is that made all this, we kind of participate in that to some extent because we we know that we can create new tools and new ideas, new languages, et cetera, that actually influence our own evolutionary path. All right, we mentioned this earlier, just the, the idea of private property. That's not a thing that doesn't exist anywhere. It's this uh, game that we've kind of imagined, yet if we pretend it's true, if we pretend everyone has, everyone owns themselves and everyone has rights to the fruit of their own labor, then we create this very pragmatic outcome of more wealth in the world. So that's interesting to me that it's, we kind of, we're kind of like the animal, the animal that plays imagination, but the imaginal play that we engage in has very real consequences. This is where I'm not sure. Um, so I don't know if private property is just a social construct. I don't know if there's something like the platonic forms, which is mathematical, but for any idea or any conception. Mm. So it exists. It's just not in the way that we think of existence. And then also, I know it's said so frequently in the modern and perhaps even ancient Eastern side that non-dualism is what you're at least intimating or at least insinuating. Sorry. I wonder how much of that is strangely a left brain phenomenon on something that's a right brain issue. So what I mean by that is it sounds like, hey, no, what are you talking about? Like the left brain is the analytical one. We're the more creative types who are the ones that are in touch with consciousness and we could see the undividedness of nature. I don't know. I know that Ian McGilchrist says that the left brain likes to categorize and place as holes everything and see everything as the same. Whereas the right brain, the creative mm. one, is actually the one that likes to make distinctions and see this as different. And I don't know. I've had experiences of oneness. I've also had many experiences of dividedness. And I wonder how much of it is. Mm -hmm. Metaphysically, I think the next number up from one is not two, it's three. And the reason is that if you have a vertex, then if you add another vertex, it doesn't mean anything to this vertex unless there's a connection. As soon as you have two and then the connection, then you have three objects. You have two vertices and one edge or just a single mm -hmm. vertice. So I wonder how much of reality is a threeness or even more. And we're just saying it's undivided. That's the wrong way of saying it. And we're saying it's both undivided and not. That's wrong. But then am I perverting every metaphysical claim with my language is just abandonment of language the route well that's what some monks say like just just stop it's even a sin to speak or at least a sin to be curious and speak about these large issues i don't know i've had feelings of, of each way and i am constantly yes i think you asked me like what have i learned from this podcast i've just learned to try to go with the waves and jesus that, that's not easy because i want to swim upward and breathe Sometimes I gasp, but I'm just being tumbled and tumbled in a, in a whirlpool. Descartes had a quote about this too. Anyway, I, I don't, have a, don't have a question there. But essentially just saying like, I, I wish I had the same worldview or same certainty as other people. I just don't know. Well, I agree with you about... By the way, I don't yeah, see it as something. a virtue to be like the Socratic, like not knowing. I think it's healthy to have a, a certain amount of closed-mindedness. And maybe that's even harkens back to what I was saying about constraints 
as well as openness. You need that. Otherwise, you'll just dissolve in a pool. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You, I think Chesterton said, don't be so open-minded that your mm -hmm. brains fall mm -hmm. out everywhere. Um, there, And it always comes back to me, comes back for me to that relational aspect. You know, Peterson calls it order and chaos. Um, obviously, I did this long series on metaphysics. Um, it was it was about the book Leela by Robert Persig. But he's making the point that subject-object is kind of a false paradigm, that there's really this betweenness that is more um, a higher resolution depiction of reality, if you will. Uh, John, I've talked to John Verveke a lot about this too. He, he says rather than subjectivity or objectivity, the betweenness is transjectivity. Uh, it, yeah, it's like there's this infinite complex system around us called reality. And then we're trying to generate different knowledge structures to map portions of it and communicate about it. But we have to take all of those, I call these like a symbolic structure, if you will. And this could be anything. This could be a theory. This could be, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. This could be a company. These are all just symbolic structures we've created to help us do something practical with that reality, to navigate it or, or understand it or talk about it. But we have to always understand that those symbolic structures are provisional, right? They're subject to change. Um, you know, Newton gave us certain laws that made a lot of sense for a long time and let us accomplish practical things in the real world. But eventually, those laws were proven to be insufficient to, to be a, a deeper descriptor of reality, right? As when Einstein came along, for instance. So... I guess that's the way I look at it overall now. It's not, I'm not saying the only thing I know is I know nothing at all. Knowledge serves no purpose, but I think Aristotle said the purpose of knowledge is not knowledge, it's action. Uh -huh. right? So that these structures we create need to ground out in some practical change in how we engage with the world. Otherwise, they're not useful. And then we also have to understand, and in that way, I would kind of think my based on all that i kind of think maybe we can't have a theory of everything yep. hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Like, can maybe keep reaching and always have a theory of everything, but I don't know that we'll ever hit the bottom and be like, oh, this is it. This piece of knowledge encodes everything about reality. I don't know that that's even possible. Yeah, I agree. And there's some mathematical reasons why that's not the case. I'm sure you've heard of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah. Yes, and then the yeah. question is, well, if physics is embedded in math and math is incomplete, then is the whole physical enterprise, or the whole theory of everything enterprise, a doomed one? Well, maybe we... That's why I think even defining what a theory of everything is a treacherous endeavor, because maybe we just want a theory of most. And that's, and that's good <laughs> enough. Or we want... Who knows, man? Who knows? I'm so torn. I oscillate so frequently on this. Who is someone historically that you would like to have interviewed like on your top two or three list? That's dead. That's no longer around. Oh, that's dead. Wow. Well, Mises, right off the bat, um, you know, the most profound writer and thinker in, in Austrian economics, mm. as far as I can tell. I mean, there's a lot, but he's really, really stands out to me. Plato, I mean, that guy's after going through, I went through the Republic recently with John Bravaki and this other book. Yeah, Plato's super interesting thinker. I would love, love to have talked to. Um, I would love to have talked with Jesus okay, yeah, of Nazareth. Yeah, right, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, those are three for me. Who, what about you? I don't know. I was going to say Jesus is number one, but I didn't even think about this until I until I asked, so I need to think about this some more. John von Neumann, he's a was a ah, mathematician. Yeah. He or oh, never mind. I thought it was. I was thinking of a different Neumann. Von Neumann, you may have heard of von Neumann machines, which is the idea that there can be extraterrestrials that send out probes, and those probes self-replicate, and it just happens ad infinitum. And then that's maybe what we're seeing when we see mm. Tic Tacs in the sky. Those are von Neumann probes, I believe they're called. Von Neumann was just. Apparently, he may have been the quickest, like the highest IQ person to ever have lived. There are stories wow. about, and he died so young too, like 55 or 50. There's a famous, mm. okay, I'll give a brief aside. There's a fly math problem of the fly. Okay, so let's imagine you have two cars and they're going toward each other 50 miles per hour each. They're initially, let's say 50 miles apart, or let's say 100 miles apart. Okay, so they're 100 miles apart, going at each mm -hmm. other at 50 miles per hour. Then there's a fly who is at the tip of one of these cars and he deftly moves mm -hmm. at 200 miles per hour, like quick, 200, but this is important, 200 miles per hour. From the tip of this guy's car to the next one, as soon as he hits the next one, he goes to this one, but then this, the initial one has traveled some bit, so then he goes to the next one and mm -hmm. that one has traveled a bit until the cars crash. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, well, how far did the fly travel? Okay, so the you can do this infinite series where you plus and then you... Well, you have an infinite series, and it's a difficult one to compute. You have to use pen and paper. Or you can realize that there's a mm. trick. Okay, these cars are coming at each other at 50 miles per hour. That's akin to one of them standing still and the other going at 100 miles per hour. How far were they initially? 100 miles apart. Okay, so it takes them one hour to collide. This fly travels at 200 miles per hour. So then it's only traveled for mm. one hour, so it's traveled 200 miles. There's a trick. Hmm. Okay, so someone said this to von Neumann, and then von Neumann said almost like in two seconds, he's like, okay, 200. The answer is 200. They're like, oh, you know this trick. And then he's like, what trick? I just summed the infinite series. And you're like, oh, gosh. 
<laughs> jeez. Jeez, jeez, jeez. People would say they'd be working on problems for like weeks or days, and he would come in and just offhandedly say the answer. So he's someone I would just like right. to speak to. Well, that's funny that the heuristic, you could maybe make it even simpler in that you know the cars were traveling for one hour, you know the fly goes right, right. 200 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly, miles, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, It's just hilarious that he's like, oh, just some did. That's incredible. I, I, could see that. I could see that infinite series in my mind, but there's no way I could ever sum that yeah, up. Yeah, geez. And then as for a third person, I don't know. I don't know. So what about, so of guests that you've had, are there any particular conversations that really stand out to you that that I don't know have been especially popular or impactful for you yeah, personally? I think most of them are and that it's more difficult like there are just a few that haven't been so it's easier to mm. for me to point out that these ones were just humdrum conversations but then that's rude for me to say like, mm. oh yeah these five people right, so right, right. I don't know yeah. I don't know how to I just say most of them are how about for you do you find that almost each one is extremely impactful or are there just a few well there's so I mean it spans it's a wide spectrum for me, but again, I'm trying to have conversations that are fascinating. Um, sometimes, like especially when we get into the political dimensions of Bitcoin, I'm less, I'm just less mm -hmm. engaged politically. Now, why I'm is not, that? I kind of think. Well, the way I see it is, so what do we have in pol? And you have to be clear with your definition of politics. Um, one definition is it's kind of like the ethics of distributed cognition. So we have, we're solving a lot of problems in the world through, by connecting our minds to other people. You know, a lot of this is the marketplace itself. The, there's an argument to be made. Well, okay. That distributed computing system needs an ethical component, obviously to be, you know, to serve humans. Um, so if you mean politics in that sense, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Like, yeah, of course we need ethical systems, you know, legal systems and whatnot, but the overemphasis on the political dimensions of our characters individually and collectively, uh, I, this idea that, you know, your views and my views are different. So we need to go like shout it out on Twitter to try and have one of us emerge victorious to then create the rules that the rest of us need to follow. I think that is a product of the fiat currency complex. Like we're trying to get way too many competing interests under one umbrella. Whereas in reality, these people should just live in separate states. They should just, you should have more optionality in terms of uh, locating yourself within, within a jurisdiction. But the reason we don't have that is because of uh, federal government overgrowth, which is rooted in the corruption of money itself. The, that we can keep printing more money uh, to fund these programs that otherwise could not exist. So that's why I'm not, I, like, I think in a Bitcoinized world, and this is a whole rabbit hole conversation, we move from a world, today we have like almost 200 nation states. I think we move into a world that has something more like 20,000 free private cities or something like that, that you can live within. So then in that world, why would people be arguing over whatever topic abortion rights you just wouldn't do it you would just move to the place that's aligned with your values and that would be that right you wouldn't need to be on twitter having arguments about this stuff you would just move <laughs> vote with your wallet or, or vote with your feet so have people said you need to have on more socialists or more marxists uh no i've i 
I should talk to some because what I've never heard a socialist or Marxist do is refute the the Austrian argument that you can't compute price signals. So if you can't do that, then how, how do you allocate yeah. capital? There's, I've never heard even a slightly viable response to that question. Um, instead, it just spins off into these epic fantasies of, you know, if I was the one in charge, I could somehow make the socialist utopia a reality. We never had real socialism before. But I think that is just hubristic to the yeah. maximum. You're somehow the special individual that can solve the human organiz organizational problem that no one's ever been able to solve by, you know, concentrating power into the hands of a few. Just don't think that yeah, works. Yeah, though, interestingly enough, there are some anarchist socialists. So, for instance, well, anarchist syndicist or syndicalist is Chomsky. And someone that I know, I'll try and tiptoe around this, someone I know closely is as radical left uses the term radical left so i'm not disparaging as you can be and she was saying yeah no it has to be anarchistic like our whole enterprises has to be anarchistic and i was thinking how the heck what are you talking about as far as i know it's all it starts with a larger government or it starts by you petitioning to the government to do so and so so if you're anarchistic shouldn't you be reeling from that and align yourself a bit more with the libertarians so i don't know but i haven't studied this much when I put out on Twitter, I said, I would like to do a podcast on on the potential of a large upcoming recession slash crash and what that even means and what to do about it, practically what to do about it for people who are of the 99% and so on. Someone said, yeah, but are you going to get on someone who challenges this capitalistic system? And what I think is much of the time they have this idea of a capitalist who if they were to speak to that capitalist would say, we don't have a capitalist system. You're telling me that I like the status quo. They have this idea, but then right. also the capitalists have this idea of what a socialist is. And then you have people like Richard Wolff who said, that's not like me. And, and here's actually what I believe. It's all so complex. And I'm just like here with my pen and paper and just like, give me some, let me stick to the partition function and Wilson loops and so on. It's much more simple. At least it's much more simple in terms of this, these are variables I can control. Yes. Yeah. Well, I try and transcend that debate by just talking about statism versus I, i've been calling it sovereignism like you could historically call this capitalism just pure capitalism but we've never had that there's never been pure capitalism because capitalism basically means it's life liberty and property right you you own yourself you go out into the world and create things that of value that you also own other people do the same thing and then you trade with people to create more wealth but the problem is that violence and theft has always been a viable wealth acquisition strategy so you can never have that idealized world so long as there's any form of violence or coercion and so i think the real trick in the world is to create systems that make violating property rights more expensive mm. and if you make it more expensive then you're making you know theft and violence a less viable wealth acquisition strategy and that leaves people, the only other option that leaves people with then is long-term trade, cooperation, innovation, all these things that we engage, these modes of engagement that are consensual versus uh, non-consensual, like, you know, taxation, theft, war, all these things are non-consensual forms of exchange. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm very partial to the capitalist that would say, no, this is not a capitalistic system, because if you understand what a central bank is, a central bank is an anti-capitalistic organization 
It it is does not emerge on the free market, right? It's forcefully inserted by uh, the monopolist on violence, which is the state, and it's used to control monetary policy, which is the same thing as saying it's used to steal from people. It's used to steal from people through inflation. So anyone that says this is late stage capitalism doesn't understand central banking at all. Uh, Central banking actually comes straight out of Marx's 1848 manifesto to the Communist Party. Measure number five, centralized state monopoly over cash and credit. It's not capitalistic, does not emerge on the free market. No one consensually accepts it. Um, So yeah, this is not, we've never seen, and I, I hate to say this because it's the same argument socialists use. When I say we've never had pure capitalism right, in exactly. the world, the socialist wars, we've never had pure socialism. So we've had enough socialism to know that price signals can't be generated. Capital cannot be allocated intelligently. And then you're left with just might is right, basically. That's what socialism devolves into. It's It doesn't have the distributed computing and allocation capabilities that capitalism does but to throw but capitalism has been so beat up that term you can't use it or you get into this endless dance so i try to just i've been writing this series called sovereignism i'm like you just honor the life liberty property of the individual and then let everyone else self-organize so you never bring coercion to bear other than to protect life liberty and property and this is not a new idea this is this was what King John signed in 1215 when he signed the Magna Carta. They said, life, liberty, inviolable property. This is the scope of government. Anything beyond this is is nonsense for government to, to be involved with. So, Yeah, it's extremely um, complex. Extremely complex. And it gets into the economics of violence and force, really. It's like we're, it's physics, ultimately. If, if you can project power physical power in a certain way to, to steal someone else's wealth, then you're going to do that, right? That's what states do. That's what, that's what militaries are. Um, inversely, if you can make it really hard to take someone's wealth by force, then you, we pour ourselves into a new incentive schema where the way to, the best way to acquire wealth is through trade and cooperation. So I hope, and the big hope of Bitcoin is that it pushes the world in that direction because it's very, expensive to steal bitcoin ah aha okay so that's what you meant by make it expensive and do you synonymize making it expensive with a disincentive or disincentive is more broad because that can include violence well uh making something expensive is a disincentive to use it or an incentive to use substitutes right so you don't use the word disincentive because the word disincentive is broader than making it expensive expensive implies disincentive but disincentive doesn't imply okay yes Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There are different types of disincentives other than cost, but you could also put it all under the rubric of risk, Mm -hmm. you know, make it riskier, violate property. That's in terms of it's either going to cost you more or you might, there might be retribution. You might get hurt or it might backfire or whatever it is. So making property more risky to violate is a big push for humans towards productive cooperative behavior and away from destructive behavior i don't like well not that i don't like but i have issues when people say everything is political 
And that tends to come from the activist side. I don't hear it much on the activist right side. I hear it on the activist left side, though maybe they say just as much. Well, the the last thing I'll say about the politics is what I see in the world is a lot of people yelling and fighting amongst themselves. But what are they, like, zoom it all the way out, what are they doing? They're saying, I think these rules should be the rules in play. And I think the money that the state is stealing through taxation and inflation should be used to fund the imposition of these rules on others. So if you're like, okay, wait a minute, if what should really happen in that situation is the people you're trying to impose rules on, they should just fork off and be their own other society, right? Then you don't have the cost of enforcing these rules and there's nothing, there's no political dispute to be had. So that's like, it's kind of a radical vision of the future because we've never had something like Bitcoin to get us to that world of, of very high consent and very low coercion. But it's, uh, it's a vision that I'm, I'm just trying to help energize and animate through these conversations. Is there a connection between cryptocurrency, not Bitcoin in particular, but cryptocurrency and consciousness or physics? Well, uh, I look at all cryptos that are not Bitcoin as basically a scam. Okay, then choose Bitcoin. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to know, is there a connection? There, is there a connection between Bitcoin and consciousness? And the reason is that I would like to learn more about cryptocurrencies and explore it on the podcast, but I have such a, let's paradoxically call it a narrow view of a theory of everything. So like I'm narrowly focused on everything. And so that means that I <laughs> I spend all my almost all my time thinking about well, what are the different toes and how do they relate and consciousness and so on, that if I'm to investigate Bitcoin in particular on the podcast, it would need to be, it would need to have some direct, maybe even causal relationship with consciousness. And it does have a relationship with math, clearly because it's based in math, but also physics. Like, like, is there something about the laws of physics or the way that cryptocurrencies work that can be used as a machine learning model for the way that the universe may have began? And so you understand, you understand. I don't know. So it's not, no, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's a hard question for me. I think consciousness is one of the most mysterious words there is. Like I, we, as a species, don't seem to have much idea what it is. I have no clue, frankly. But what I, the way I will try to answer your question is money is at least a really important perceptual apparatus. All right, I've, I've brought up the term price signals a lot, but we think through mm. money. Right. It's almost like we when you see, and this is stock markets, right? You're looking at the prices of things changing. You don't know the story behind that. You don't know the natural disasters or the new production yep. facilities or the new trade agreements that led to that price. All you know is the price. And you know, often in markets they say price is truth. So it's like the ultimate economic telecommunications device, the pricing system. And this is, again, what allocates capital intelligent, intelligently in a capitalistic marketplace, a thing that socialism cannot do. Well, all of that communication is occurring through money, right? We're speaking through dollars or whatever currency it is. So I don't know that there's a relationship between money and consciousness per se, but there's at least one between money and perception. Like it radically, it lets us see the world through the eyes of others. Yeah, there may be a relationship between perception and, and reality. Yes. So everyone involved with the the cotton price goes up to dollars. I seeing the world through all the eyes of cotton producers and consumers and where they're where the market is clearing uh-huh. between. That's them. extreme. And that's a very powerful data compression yeah. mechanism, right? You can see the eyes of so many people in one number. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
Okay, so when you say price, I'm translating in my head to worth, but you're you you say no, don't. Uh, so price is an exchange ratio. So instead of saying this house costs eleven cars, right? Because everything trades at some ratio mm-hmm. of everything else. You say house is four hundred and forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars equal to 11 of these $40,000 cars. So it's money is like an economic language of, of numeracy, right? A common economic language of numeracy in a way. Okay. And so instead of talking all these ratios, like how many chairs is a house cost and house is a car cost, you just say the price and money and it's easier to perform economic calculation. Okay. I don't think I should have used the word worth. What I meant was where should one spend their attention spend as soon as you say the word spend then you think of it as a commodity Mm. as soon as you think of it as that you think of it as something with a number and that some are valued higher so you think of it on a an ordered number line so something with a with an echelon so then you can decide what to pay attention to some things and not others and that's influenced by prices that i need to work through this but it's extremely interesting i never thought about that before about how price influences yeah, perception. No, but the, perception, to me, I'm not convinced of this, but there's there are arguments, convincing arguments, or so, let's say potentially convincing arguments that there's a relationship between perception and reality. There's certainly a relationship per- perception and consciousness. And, mm-hmm. and so thank you for giving me that, man. Oh, happy to do it. Um, and there's, it's uh, again, it, there's reciprocal feedback though, because all this this distillation of market actions gets compressed into the price, but then the price is also informing right, all right, those market right. actors what to yeah. do. Right. So if the price is up, then I'm going to consume less, produce more and vice versa if it's down. So it's this feedback. You're talking about centralization, decentralization earlier. It's like everything centralizes to the price, but then it informs the decentralized actions of, of all those market participants. And so it's really, it's just like a never ending feedback loop. Uh And that's probably how cognition works in some way. I'm not, you know, I'm not super familiar on this, but it, again, I would call that distributed cognition. Yeah. Right. You've got a bunch of minds interconnected by the price signal and they're moving in concert based on how that price moves. So it's, you've wired together a distributed cognitive network. I would imagine the individual cognitive network works some, in some way similar to that. We also, certainly Although, sexual selection works like that. Have you heard of assortative dating? No. The studies on it where you put a number on your head and no one knows their own number, but they're all looking at each other. You've seen studies like this or you've heard of this? Okay, so I've you get people in a room and, gener- and you say, like, who do you want to make out with? Something like that. Like, choose a partner that you're willing to make out with. We're not going to get you to make out with them, but choose someone you're willing to make out with. Generally, the people who are best looking pair up with one another and then the, it just goes down to the worst looking people or what we think of as the worst looking people okay if you say mm-hmm. now do the same except you have a number on your head it's it's either one to ten you don't know which one yours is but you can see everyone else's then mm-hmm. even if you're a 10 physically if your number is three you look at someone else and you're able to judge unconsciously the way that they look at you and and someone else who is a 10 would look at you as a three and not want to join you somehow they unconsciously know their own number and then they pair up with numbers that match each other even though you don't know your own number wow and the reason i was saying that i forget there's a point to this well anyway the fact that you're evaluated as a number and then that has such meaning then means that well price 
is there's a relationship between price and value. I know that you, you didn't want to say price and worth, and but there is a relationship. Oh, there, there is, there is. There, so Austrian economists would say that all value, the process of valuation, it's always a matter of where basically you have a preference for something, right? Here's the first thing you want, the second thing you want, the third thing you want. So there's, they are ordinal, right? These are, you, you have like a best friend, a second best friend, a third best friend. It doesn't make sense to be like, this best friend is 75 points more uh, than my okay, second okay. best oh, friend. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Right? Whereas the world of cardinal numbers, like something in pricing, is something you can compare and say, this is $50 or $5. It's not ordinal. So the pricing system is converting ordinal value expression into a cardinal numeral system. And so that's very useful that you're, you're kind of converting qualitative something qualitative right which is just preference into something that's quantitative which is a price and so it lets us engage in this distributed compute um model we call the, the free market okay so we'll just leave it with one big question here is there a guess or conversation that took you down an unexpected path that you are currently going down and if so what is that path um what i guess thinking about a lot uh recently from yeah the show. like i mentioned they're easier for me to find people who were dull than that were engaging but the last two so ian mcgilchrist and tim maudlin so tim maudlin i talked to him about interpretations of quantum mechanics and that made me he doesn't call it's interesting he doesn't call what physicists study in undergrad or graduate studies or even phd level he doesn't call that quantum theory he calls that quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, but he doesn't like to use the word theory. Because to him, theory means that you have to know what you're talking about. It's not just the mathematical description. You need to have an ontology as well, or show how this math relates to what is. So mm -hmm. that's why he includes, as soon as you have an interpretation of quantum mechanics on top of quantum mechanics, then you have a quantum theory. At least this is his terminology. Mm -hmm. And Okay, so that's interesting. And I personally, I, I like mathematics. And I think that much can be gleaned from the, well, not much, plenty can be gleaned from the mathematics to the interpretation. Speaking with him, I'm less certain about that. And I'm much more interested now in, in interpretations of quantum mechanics. And so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll dedicate an entire section of the book to interpretations of quantum mechanics because I'd like to understand them more. Okay, so that's a rabbit hole I'm going down that I thought I had explored, but I, I'm realizing it was vacuous. So I'm interested in that. Then with Ian McGilchrist, well, he's just bangs on all cylinders of mine. Consciousness, philosophy. See, I think that there are these people who label themselves as skeptics. I don't think you should label yourself as a skeptic. I think that you should be an open-minded investigator of, of what is and not a skeptic. And that includes some paradigm agnostic inquiries. To, you're open to other definitions of what is, is. So sometimes they mm -hmm. have these self-evident truths. I don't think being or what is simple. And also when people talk about God, I'm super interested in, in different definitions of God. And I, I happen to think that whenever anyone mm -hmm. says God is so-and-so, like they come up with a definition, I think it's false. I think that anything that you place into that blank of God is so-and-so will automatically demean it. And it's right. like akin to constructing an idol. But anyway, so Ian McGilchrist bangs on all of those cylinders. I'm just wrestling with those. It's super, super fun. It's, and it's super destabilizing as well. So it's not fun. 
like jeez like, <laughs> fun and no. not fun yeah it's not fun <laughs> good, good paradox it's right <laughs> i want to tell you one more paradox if you don't mind it's just one that i yes, i heard please. the other day and i thought this is super fun so it's called i don't know what it's called like the surprise paradox it goes like mm. a teacher says there's going to be a surprise test you will be surprised that's the condition it's a school teacher, so it's Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, not the weekends. Okay, and it's next week. You're going to be surprised next week. There's a test coming up. So the students then confer with each other. They're like, oh, shoot, when, when, when is it going to be? They think, you know what? If it is going to be a surprise, it can't be Friday. Why? Because by Thursday evening, if we hadn't had the test, we know it's tomorrow. So we're certain it's tomorrow. It's no longer mm. a surprise. Okay, mm. now we've ruled out Friday. By that same logic, we can rule out mm -hmm. Thursday. And then by the same logic, we can rule mm -hmm. out Wednesday. By the same logic, we can rule out Tuesday. By the same logic, we can rule out Monday. There's not going to be a surprise test next week. It's impossible. Then the teacher comes. <laughs> so that's already interesting. But then the teacher comes. And at noon on Wednesday, they get a test. And she's like, surprise. So everything the teacher said came true. There was a surprise test. Because they had ruled out the fact that there mm -hmm. would be a surprise. And then the question is, well, how is this all possible? Like, wh where's the flaw in this logic? And this apparently has been debated again for decades and decades. It's something that I, I'm thinking about, too. So that's what I'm thinking about. So there's something about expectation in these paradox. And the last example, mm -hmm. thing too, you gave, I don't Well, it's quite the trip to yeah. think about to say the least yeah then there's the liar's paradox like this sentence is false was well, it true if it's true if it's false if it's right analogize that to pinocchio's nose like he says my nose grows now yeah. if he's lying then his nose wouldn't grow but then if his nose is not going to grow that means he was lying so it should grow right yeah yeah, yeah. it's fascinating we live trapped in language yeah 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 I, I don't know how much of what we're doing even here is is like a sin because we're just muddying the waters by speaking. I have intimations of that, like, but I also am not fully convinced that there's two routes to go. I'll end with this. There are two routes. You can sit, you can make the case that language is just pragmatic. It's just use. And that's the Wittgenstein case. And I think to me, that's the easiest case to mm -hmm. make. I am of the position that the mm -hmm. easiest case to make is while the primrose path is usually one that has, that's false in some manner. So I don't, it could be the case. Like sometimes there's just an easy answer. It's like Occam's, Occam's razor, right? Just languages for utility. Yeah, and there are issues with Occam's razor too. We can talk about that another time. But anyway, like people love yeah. Tim Modlin talks about this. He's like, if you think there's a single adage that can get you to choose between two theories, like you're mistaken. That's not how the world works. And also then you wonder, well, what's an assumption? Yeah. If you just put an and between two assumptions, is that now one assumption? If I say God did it, is that one mm. assumption? Or is that like 50 assumptions? Is God one or, or 50? Like mm. who knows what an assumption mm. is? Anyway, right. so there's the case to be made that language is just for use and that it's not meant to investigate these metaphysical questions. Or there's the case that we need more explicit language a more explicated language so more differentiation rather than more unity and yep. i don't know as the analytic part and the experiential part of me are torn in different directions and i think maybe there's a third option or fourth like we just keep breaking it down analytically mm -hmm. experientially are those the two is there a third is there a multitude is there 12 there's something holy about the number 12 so i tend to like that it's so just mystically it's fun 12 but i don't know mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway it's good good talking with you man oh yeah and if people are interested in the sorts of questions that i ask here or the sorts of topics that we raised here then visit theories of everything type that in into youtube into spotify itunes and so on and 
you'll browse through the guest list. There's quite a few. There's Chomsky who's been on seven times, eight times he's coming up again. And then there's Tim Maudlin and, and Stephen Wolfram and Eric Weinstein and Jordan Peterson, though Jordan Peterson interviewed me, much like you. That was that must have been like must have been like, oh man, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the largest platform I've been on. Mm-hmm. So I was super nervous during that. But anyway, mm-hmm. thanks, man. Yeah, Kurt, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hope we yeah. can do it again. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes